Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What's up, everyone, and welcome to The Reluctant Historian. This is the podcast where I try to show my husband that history is actually cool. I'm your host, Liz Lawson, and this is our reluctant historian, Dakota Lawson. On this podcast, I'll tell him a story from history, and he'll share his unapologetic thoughts and opinions. So, if you love history, or you absolutely hate it, this podcast is for you. Okay, so we're in the month of February, Yeah, and February is traditionally recognized and celebrated as Black History Month. So I, for this episode, wanted to do a survey of Black history in Canada. Survey? Yes. L- like Family Feud? <laughs> survey says! <laughs> no, actually, um, a survey in historical in the historical sense of the word means that we look at many different things over a long period of time, but we don't go too in-depth into it. Okay, cool. I think, yeah, I think this will be really cool to learn about because I've... Uh, I feel like there's a lot that I don't know, so it'll be cool to actually, uh, you know, fill my knowledge base. I mean, just last week I was talking to a coworker. He was asking me questions about uh, Valentine's Day, and I was like, well, "Let me tell you about this." And then I gave him all this information from last week. So I feel like you're. I feel like this is working. So I'm excited to hear about uh, Black History. And it's really important that we learn about Black History because in you know, if you look at our country versus America, Black History has Black History Month has such a bigger impact on the culture than we have here in Canada. I think um, we don't really do a good job of recognizing and celebrating Black History Month here in Canada. So I think it's important that we talk about it. Absolutely. Before we begin, I just want to position myself. Um, this is something that people do in research that allows people to recognize where I may have bias and where I, where I may not have lived experience. So I'm a white middle-class woman um, teaching a white middle-class man, and neither of us is speaking about Black history from a place of experience, but it's a place of research. And this is not to take away from Black voices. This story and this episode is to teach other white people about things in Black history that they may not have heard about or may not have known about. It is important that we know and learn about black history and not take away from black voices. So there are some really excellent podcasts that people could listen to if they're interested, and I'll link those in our show notes. But a couple of them are Code Switch, What a Day, 1619, and Pod Save the People. So these are all black-run podcasts that talk about issues that are facing black people today and They're just really excellent and you should check them out. And I also think it's important that we talk about Black history, um, not only because it's Black History Month, but also because Canadians don't really know about our own racist past. And I think that we look to America and say, oh, at least we're not as bad as them, without recognizing that we also have a past that has oppressed people of color and we don't highlight that or know a lot about it. So 
I think that that is important that and that the stereotype of Canadians as nice, polite people isn't necessarily true. So sit down, buckle up, and get ready to listen about Black history in Canada. would like to begin by recognizing that we are recording on Treaty 6 territory and the homeland of the Métis Nation. We make this acknowledgement in recognition that we are settlers here on the land that belongs to the many different First Nations of Canada. Okay, so Dakota, this week we are not doing our golden nuggets because, again, I wanted this to be a highlight of black history and not dakota dakota and liz history (laughs) exactly not dakota and liz history because that's not the topic here okay so we already answered the question about what a survey is so we're going to start at the beginning the first black person thought to be in canada was a man named matthew da costa in 1608 and he was a free man who had been hired by europeans to act as a translator So he had come to Canada with a lot of the colonizers um, and the fur traders to help promote trade amongst the indigenous people there. It's thought that he was known to speak Dutch, English, French, Portuguese, Mi'kmaq, which is an indigenous language, and Pigeon Basque. Pigeon Basque. Yes. So Pigeon would mean like a mix of English and the original language and Basque is um, a language that comes from the Basque region, if you would believe that. I don't believe it. (laughs) And also, he's really showing me up because it makes me wonder, what have I done with my life? (laughs) He knows knows all these languages? Yeah, you certainly don't know one, two, three, four, five, six different languages. I know one. That's good. Um, Pigeon Basque is actually a dialect that many indigenous people used for trading purposes because, like I said, lots of um, settlers and colonialists will colonialists were coming here to trade with indigenous people specifically beaver pelts oh cool these translation and communication skills help to reduce the cultural gap between the early french explorers and the first nations people oh cool that seems helpful so things to note about canada at this time Mm -hmm. it was colonized by french people first from france and then it was colonized by english people from england we were technically like an outpost of france And so King Louis would send people to come do trading here. And this area was called New France. Okay. So uh, this Matu, right? Mm -hmm. He came over with like from, what did you say, England? I don't actually know where he came from. Okay. But he came across the pond, essentially. Yes. He came. And and he was then free. Like he was. Yeah. He was not a slave. His own dude. Yeah. He was not enslaved. Okay. I just, I'm trying to figure out where this, uh, all fits all fits into the story but okay that makes sense if he mm-hmm. came over from the, over the pond so he was working with the french people and we know that he was working with the french people because he had actually been kidnapped by the dutch in 1608 and the french had to travel to amsterdam to contest that and get him back so his story is actually really fascinating um and there's an Canadian Encyclopedia article that I've linked to if you want to read more about him in our show notes. Canada Post issued a postage stamp honoring DaCosta on February 1st, 2017. Cool. 
So you were talking about Da Costa and how he was a free man. And so the question is, when did the first enslaved people come to Canada? Yeah. So enslaved Africans had been on the continent since about 1619. Um, and they came to Canada, came to New France, actually, in 1628. And the first enslaved black person was a six-year-old boy. And he was sold several times. And then he was finally sold to a priest who baptized him and gave him the name Olivier Lejeune. Olivier Lejeune. That's a nice name. Wait, was this priest, I don't know if you have any information about it, but was it like, was he a nice priest or was he just like, a dick priest that was had a slave i have no information about this priest okay Okay. i was just like like i don't know if like if i was just wondering if the priest was like i'm buying you but so you i could baptize you and you can be free Mm. essentially it's a good question i think probably not i think he probably kept him enslaved in may 1689 king louis the 14th of france and of which we already know that new france was a colony gave limited permission for the colonialists of New France to have black and Pawnee slaves, so he said it was allowed. The colonists had complained about the shortage of available servants and workers and had appealed to the king for permission to own slaves. Then, in 1709, he formally authorized slavery when he permitted his Canadian subjects to own slaves in full proprietorship. In France, there were actually fewer slave owners than in the neighboring English colonies, and a few of the French colonists openly questioned the long-standing practice. That's good. They're they're on the right track, I guess. In 1760, when the British eventually conquered New France, the Articles of Capitulation, so when New France gave up to England. Sorry, before we go any further, where is New France in this? Uh, New France is uh, technically, think of Quebec up into about Nova Scotia and up further. And then it actually goes all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. So it included Louisiana, all of the Great Lakes. It went into parts of Manitoba and Saskatchewan. Oh, interesting. So there were fights between Britain and New France. And when the British conquered them, part of the surrender said that the black people and the Pawnee people would remain as slaves. However, by 1776, Canada had developed a reputation as a safe haven for black people. That's nice. During the American Revolution of 1775 to 1783. Which is different than the American Civil War, where the North was fighting the South about slavery. So this war, the British were trying to make sure that America would stay part of their colony. And to entice people to their side, they offered land, freedom, and rights to slaves and to black people who were free in exchange for services rendered. So essentially, come be in our army. And then also during this time, British generals were encouraging enslaved people to desert their master, so the American person that owned them, promising them freedom and shelter. So they were encouraging the enslaved black people to leave America and come to what is now Canada to be safe and no longer enslaved. So it's developing this reputation as a safe place for black people. Right. Okay. Well, that's that sounds nice. I'm I'm assuming that this doesn't go well. Well, entice them to come to Canada to kind of serve in their army doesn't mean they're not going to have discrimination or oppression or that they're going to be treated as a first class citizen. So they're just basically looking at them as cannon fodder, essentially. Oh, so the whole um, safe haven kind of thing that you're saying is just kind of words. <laughs> it's not. Yeah, it's safe. not actually to um, be like, "Oh, come here, you'll be safe." No, you're just uh, 
you used as a weapon. Yes, exactly. So they wanted them to come do the fighting with them. Mm. But it did create a large black population in Nova Scotia. And these people are called the Black Pioneers, who were among the first settlers in Shelburne, Nova Scotia. And they helped build a new settlement there. And on the fringes, they established their own community called Birchtown. What ends up happening in Birchtown, and this plays out all over Canada... Hundreds of white disbanded soldiers who had fought in the war that we were just talking about um, were forced to accept work rates that were competitive with their black neighbors. And because of racial discrimination that existed then as well, it caused hostility, eventually becoming a riot. And this riot in Birchtown is referred to as Canada's first race riot. And it occurred on July 26, 1784. Um, This was followed by the proclamation on May 12, 1785, where frolics and dancers were immediately forbidden in the town of Shelburne. So not only does the Canadian government stop Indigenous people from practicing their culture, but they're stopping as well Black people from practicing their cultures. In 1790, so we haven't gotten that far, about 180 years since Mateu was first in Canada, 1790, settlers were still allowed to have enslaved people and bring them to Canada. Um, however, there was a imperial law issued at this time saying that the enslaved person only had to be fed and clothed and that any child born of enslaved parents became free at age 25 and anyone who released someone from bondage had to ensure that they could become financially independent. And like you alluded to, Dakota, freedom for black people was elusive regardless of the promises the British had made at the end of the American War of Independence. As well, many black people found it incredibly difficult to support themselves in face of widespread discrimination and racism. And this convinced many black loyalists that they would never find true freedom and equality in Nova Scotia. When offered the opportunity to leave the colony in 1790s, almost 1,200 black people left Halifax to relocate to Sierra Leone. Sierra Leone? That's in Africa. Oh, okay. So they went they went back to Africa then. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, cool. They were just, they were given their freedom mm-hmm. at that point? Well, because they were, like, you know, they were in word told that they would have freedom. Mm-hmm. But they're still facing the discrimination. Yeah, if, even if they're free in Nova Scotia, it sounds like, are they really free? Because they're just constantly berated with awful people being awful. So they went back to Africa and happily ever after there? Or no? No. Oh. I don't know what actually happened to the freed black people that went back to Sierra Leone. But mm-hmm. um, I can only imagine it was not very good because eventually... Africa was colonized as well by the British, and there are huge human rights atrocities that have been committed in Africa and in Sierra Leone. So are you familiar with Blood Diamonds? Oh, yeah. There's that uh, that Leonardo DiCaprio movie, isn't there? Mm-hmm. I've so, never seen it, but I've heard of it. <laughs> yeah, so a lot of that ha- takes place in Sierra Leone. Oh, really? Okay. Mm-hmm. So in 1793, the abolition of slavery did become a concern for the lieutenant governor of... British Canada, I guess we'll call it. British Canada? British Canada. I slipped my mouth. Oh, okay. I was like, have I been pronouncing Canada wrong? A case was brought to his attention of an enslaved woman named Chloe Cooley, who had been beaten and bound by her owner and then transported across the Niagara River to be sold in the United States. The case was brought before the Executive Council in Canada, but under English laws, they could not prosecute him, so he got away with it. What? Mm Mm-hmm. What the fuck? Mm-hmm. 
And so on 19, on June 19, 1793, an anti-slavery measure was passed, but that's not a total ban on slavery, but it's the gradual prohibition of slavery. This is followed in 1799 by a man named Joseph Papineau, who presented a citizen's petition asking the government to abolish slavery, which prompted a series of anti-slavery measures. While these bills were defeated, so it didn't pass, a movement towards the abolition of slavery was clearly underway in Canada. So we have another war, the War of 1812. That actually, oddly enough, sounds familiar. Yeah, it's a really famous war between Canada and America where we burnt down the White House. Oh, shit. Okay, I literally thought you were going to say, because you were like staring at me for a second, I was like, oh, is she going to say we've already talked about this before in this podcast? I'm like, ah, shows how much I listen. This war was, again, between the Americans and the British. America was trying to take land in what we now know as Canada, and the British were like, no, this is our land. This, again, saw thousands of black volunteers who fought for the British. They veered American conquest and the return of slavery. And so many black people in Canada served heroically in the colored and regular regiments. And this united many escaped slaves under the British flag. And so this again grows Canada's reputation as a safe haven during and after the War of 1812. And between 1816 and 1865, tens of thousands of African Americans sought refuge in Upper and Lower Canada via the legendary Underground Railway. I've heard of that one. Mm -hmm. So we... Help transport escaping enslaved people to safety in Canada. Wait, you did air quotes there. Well, did this I'm, not have a happy ending either? I mean... When will we get to our happy ending? We're not there even right now. <sighs> I know. Someday. Hopefully. So finally, in 1819, the Attorney General openly declared that residents in Canada would ultimately make black people free. And he also publicly pledged that Canadian courts would uphold this freedom. So again, between that time period, 1816 to 1865, there are many people who were against the freedom for black people, especially in America. In the USA in 1850, the Fugitive Slave Act was passed by American Congress, which allowed slave owners and their agents to track down and arrest fugitives anywhere in the country. The effect that that had on Canada is that bounty hunters would often kidnap free black people and illegally sell them into slavery in southern states. What the shit? That's so fucked up. Okay, so this led to the formation of larger and more durable anti-slavery societies in Canada. And in 1851, the Anti-Slavery Society of Canada was formed. So that sounds weird when you're listening to it, but Anti-Slavery is capital, so it's the title of a group that was created. And it was formed to aid in the extinction of slavery all over the world. So it's also important to focus on Black success and not just Black trauma. In 1857, the first Black man to receive the Victoria Cross was William Hall. He had served aboard the frigate Shannon. The frigate? It's a boat. Oh, In Calcutta, during the 1857 Indian Mutiny in India, uh, he had breached the wall of the Najif Temple to allow British troops to overcome the mutineers. And he was the first Canadian naval recipient, the first black, and the first Nova Scotian to win this medal. Sounds like a badass to me. So we've been mostly talking about settlement of Canada's east. So we're going to talk a little bit about the west. In 1858, on the invitation of the governor of British Columbia, the first ship carrying black Californians landed in Victoria. By summer's end, more than 800 black settlers had arrived. So government legislation at the time said that there should be equality among all the people who lived here, including these new black settlers. However, in truth, segregation 
did grow. A man named Mifflin Gibbs prospered in Victoria at this time, and he established a business and won public praise for helping to organize a black militia, and he decided to run for office. That was unsuccessful. However, he was elected to the Victoria Town Council in 1866, becoming the first black politician in Canada. Oh, cool. Settlement also occurred on the prairies. And we're going to jump ahead a couple years here to 1905, where there was a push to colonize and settle the West, which would include Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba. Mostly immigrants from Europe were brought in to do the colonization. However, there were a group of black Oklahomians. And I actually have some resources here from a Instagram account that I follow called Black Lives Matter YXE. And if you like Instagram, you should follow them because they are fantastic. And they have just recently posted a little bit of history about Saskatchewan's first black settler or black settlement. And I'm just going to read to you from their post because I thought it was quite interesting. Quote, the Mays family left Oklahoma in 1910 as Jim Crow laws began to take root. Many black people looked to the North for more freedom, opportunity, and equality. The Canadian government had promised free or cheap land to people settling in Western Canada. The Mays, along with other black American families, traveled almost 2,000 kilometers to Maidstone, Saskatchewan. They founded the Shiloh Community and Church, Saskatchewan's first black settlement. It was not easy. They faced racism in their new home, too. There was also institutional anti-blackness, such as legislation from the province and Prime Minister Laurier that deemed the prairies unsuitable for black people as a way to eliminate black migration. Laurier also made other racist and xenophobic comments and policies. For example, he signed an order in council to ban black immigrants. Although it was never formally invoked or included in the Immigration Act, Canadian immigration laws, opinions, and propaganda were very anti-black and anti-Chinese. One of Wilfrid Laurier's most famous quotes is, the people of Canada want to have a white country. Anti-black attitudes were prevalent, especially as the end of slavery granted black Americans and previously enslaved people the possibility to move more freely and immigrate to Canada. Anti-black racism in Saskatchewan has a long history. For example, blackface was commonplace in Saskatoon from late 1800s up until as recently as the 1960s. Holy crap. There was even the Saskatoon Minstrel Troupe. They performed in blackface throughout the province and perpetuated harmful stereotypes and images of black people. Nonetheless, the Mays stayed in the province. They made several contributions to their community, including a church, school, auto body repair, and midwifery. The Shiloh Church became a heritage site in 2017. They are a true example of resilience in the face of adversity. End quote. That, again, thank you, is from the Black Lives Matter YXE Instagram page. So you should take a look at their Instagram page and we will link them in our show notes. Okay, so 1905, that's close to 1914, which is World War One. I'd like to take a little segue to talk about um, black military service. So we already know that black people were actively involved in the previous wars. They were also actively involved in the war effort of World War One. Black associations raised funds, worked in factories, and volunteered in hospitals as laborers. Black men, though, were not welcome in the armed forces at this time. However, in December 1915, the federal government declared that enlistees could not be refused based on their race. It did not sit well with several white volunteers who then refused to sign up and fight alongside black soldiers. 
And so they were not officially enforcing this rule that you can't discriminate based on race. And so many recruiters would make their own selections. And because a society of racism was very prevalent, they wouldn't allow black people to enlist in the army. And the recruiters would only pick white volunteers. Across Canada, larger numbers of black men were turned away at recruiting stations strictly because of their race. Many, though, were unwilling to accept this rejection, and a battle for the right to fight for one's country began to take place. So there were a few years of serious debates about these issues, which I think is really fascinating because if you also know the history of Canada in World War One, you know that there were a lack of recruits. And so I find it so wild. Like we had to go to conscription to be able to provide an- enough troops to fight in this war. Sorry, and conscription? Conscription means that we are making people serve in the war oh yeah that's not nice and so we just didn't have enough people signing up by the later years of the war but yet we were turning away these people that wanted to fight just because of their race and so i just when i hear this history it just makes me feel so the like you hate a person so much that you're not going to allow them to fight in a war like it just it boggles my mind yeah and go to other people who don't want to fight in the war or like imagine if this is a big fear of mine if there was ever a war and i was tapped to join the war i'm not equipped for that i'm little but like because they don't want black people to serve they would go and get people who aren't going to there's there's a chance that the people that they go and are like tapped for war aren't going to do near as good of a job as a person who actually wants to fight for their country and it's just fucking ridiculous. So these debates did come to a head on July 15th, 1916. And the number two construction battalion, a battalion of only black men, was formed. So this doesn't mean that they no longer faced discrimination or that life was easier after this. Uh, some of the men in this battalion had hoped that their service would allow them to return to can allow them to return to Canada as equals. However, they returned to the same discrimination and racism and were not recognized for their service to Canada. What the fuck? I feel like I'm saying that a lot. This episode is the what the fuck cast because that is horse poop. This scenario played out again at the beginning of World War Two. So we're in 1939, and the Canadian military initially rejected black volunteers. But as the war continued, they were accepted into the regular army, and there was still some segregation in the Canadian forces until the end of the war. But hundreds of black men served alongside whites in Canada and Europe. So they're getting a little better, but still not great, is what I'm getting from that. In 1944... Ontario was the first province to pass the Racial Discrimination Act of 1944. And this legislation was a landmark legislation which prohibited the publication and display of any symbol, sign, or notice that expressed ethnic, racial, or religious discrimination. This was still a time period of racism and discrimination, however, and the fact of the matter was that people didn't really obey this law. One example of this is the Dresden story. When two black people visited rural Dresden in Ontario, they were refused service in two different restaurants. The Toronto Telegram went to investigate by sending two black testers who were also refused service. And so the telegram ran this story and it confirmed what many black people already knew, that Canada's laws and regulations were ineffective. 
1958, hockey player Willie O'Ree began his NHL debut with the Boston Bruins in a game against the Montreal Canadiens, becoming the first black person to enter the league. Oh, damn. There's a good, happy success story. There. Is that where our story ends? Is that where we are today? No. <laughs> 1958. Wait, what year is it? 2021. Well, damn. I want this to have a happy ending. We already discussed that it doesn't. There's a long way to go. <sighs> okay. Okay. Let's uh, carry on. But, but that's that is really cool. So, yeah. And he's Canadian. And he's Canadian. And he's the first black person in the whole league. That's pretty cool. We got... Uh... So we'll jump ahead to 1964, and I want to talk about a community called Africville. Africville. Yes. So Africville is an African-Canadian village that was just north of Halifax. It was demolished at the behest of the city of Halifax in 1964. Sorry, behest? Does that mean they wanted it or didn't yes, want it? they wanted it. Oh. So in the 18th century, Africaville became a community. They ran... The residents of this community ran fishing businesses, farms. They owned and operated small stores. And it was a haven for the anti-black racism they felt in Halifax. So this is... If we think of where Halifax is, this village, this community was just outside of Halifax. Okay. And then Halifax had it destroyed? Mm -hmm. So they kind of fell under the city of Halifax's rules, but it wasn't a part of Halifax. Right. And as you'll see from the story, they kind of become Halifax's dumping grounds. Oh, shit. Okay. Well, let's hear more about this then. So the city of Halifax did collect taxes in Africville, but they did not provide services. So when you pay your taxes... You're supposed to get things in return, like schools, paved roads. The dump truck coming and getting your garbage. Exactly. Not in the 1800s, but what? yes. They didn't have that service offered? No. What do you do with your garbage? Put it in the garbage depository. That's... Okay. <laughs> the garbage depository. <laughs> I think you just threw it in the streets. Oh, what a time. So although they did pay taxes to the city of Halifax, uh, they did not receive any services. So there was no paved roads running water, or sewage system. In 1854, a railway extension cut through the village. So they built a railway right through the village, destroying several homes and creating danger because there's a freaking railway or train track in the middle of your village and also causing pollution. The city of Halifax did try to remove people by paying, offering to pay them for their land at this point, but many homeowners protested because they had not actually been paid. And then again, the city of Halifax took more land in 1912 and in the 1940s. And in the first half of the 20th century, municipal services such as public transportation, garbage collection, recreational facilities, and adequate police protection were non-existent in this place, to which the community members were actually paying money to the city of Halifax to get those services. And they got nothing. And they got nothing. So the city of Halifax continued to place undesirable services in Africville, in the second half of the 19th century, they built a fertilizer plant, a slaughterhouse, a prison called Rockhead Prison. They put night soil disposal pits. So when you're urinating or doing your business at nighttime and you don't have running water, you would put it in like your chamber pot and that's night soil. So basically human feces. Oh. And they also put the infectious diseases hospital in this community. Did they just get together as a Halifax community go the shittiest businesses we don't want them in our borders but we'll put them in africville basically yes in 1915 the halifax city council declared that africville would always be an industrial district 
that essentially means that it's not going to have um, like any of the services that you would have in a residential area. But there was residential people living there, though. Good point. Exactly. So <laughs> that <laughs> oh, that is. I think your speechlessness is appropriate. Yeah, I don't even know what to say to that. I mean, just the the gall of humanity, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. and there and the lack of rather. Yeah, it's just fucked up. In the 1950s, so on top of all these other things that were put there, they built an open pit garbage dump in Africville. In regards to this garbage dump, the city had considered many different places, but found that it would be unacceptable to residents in the other places, as the dump was a health menace. (laughs) So they voted to put the dump 350 meters from the western edge of Africville. Yeah, that seems, seems appropriate. And there is no reference in the council minutes to any concern for the health of the Africville residents or of any consultations with residents from Africville. And this leads us up to the 1960s. So remember, 1964 is when this place is demolished. Right. The city of Halifax votes to remove the blighted houses and dilapidated structures in the Africville area. So, yes, these places were, some of them were falling apart, but not through any fault really of their own. If we think back to the way that the city of Halifax did nothing to support this community, even though they're paying taxes, whose fault is that? Yeah, exactly. So when Halifax decided to demolish Africville, they only got rid of the houses? Like they still kept their industrial shit up and stuff? I think they actually did end up getting rid of a lot of the things because yeah. I'm going to talk about what ends up staying and it doesn't okay. they don't say anything about the dump or that so they might have they might have I I'm not sure I didn't find that in my research okay the city promised that there would be urban renewal and residents would be relocated to superior housing in Halifax and the land was taken by the city in 1964 homes were bulldozed lot by lot over the next five years some residents were moved to derelict housing or rented public housing um and then a disgusting example, when a city-organized moving company canceled on them, Halifax decided to bring in dump trucks to move the residents and their possessions. And so then the stigma of being from Africaville was compounded when families arrived at their new homes on the back of dump trucks. So, welcome to the neighborhood in your garbage truck. So that's what the neighbors see you arriving in, and that's their first impression of you essentially on top of the racism that already existed so there's already so there's already the racism that's there but then oh hey here's your uber it's a garbage truck exactly damn damn several homeowners found that their homes had been bulldozed without their knowledge or permission and others only had a few hours notice before they were removed from their houses and the bulldozers came And then after they were relocated, these residents found that the home for home deals, because they were promised that they would home for a home, right, uh, did not materialize. And many realized that the sum that they had been paid for their land was only enough to put a down payment on a new house. So they weren't getting a new house outright um, when they had owned their houses before. And so now they have a mortgage, they have a down, they have to pay on this house where before they didn't have to. And so now they're in Halifax and jobs are hard to come by because companies refuse to hire black people. They had no church or communal center because that had been bulldozed in the middle of the night. Many residents moved to Montreal, Toronto and Winnipeg. And so these people who had lived in this really great communal setting are now drifting apart. So 
You're losing your home and your community on top of it. Eventually, the land of Africville was turned into private housing, ramps for a bridge on entryway, like onto a highway, and a dog park called Seaview Park. I feel like a dog park could have gone somewhere else. I feel like there was lots of room, you know? Halifax is big. Absolutely. And they're like, no, we're going to destroy your house without telling a lot of you. Or giving you a couple hours notice. I mean, I don't know what possessions the people in Africa will necessarily... I don't know what they owned, but... It, Regular housing yeah, stuff. Yeah, so all gone. And then on top of that, you're in Halifax now and you don't have any job prospects. And you have to pay for a mortgage now, which you didn't have before, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, did this lead... Maybe you don't know this, but like, did this lead to a homelessness among a lot of the people from Africville? That's a really great question. I actually didn't come across that, but yeah. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me because if you can't pay your mortgage, it's not like I don't feel like the people who are the banks and stuff like that. If this racism is rampant, I don't feel like they're going to give them any slack mm-hmm. on their mortgages. So. Right. So in 1996, this site was declared a National Historic Site of Canada. And in 2010, the mayor of Halifax apologized for the destruction of Africville and then built a replica church of the one that had been destroyed. So there was a church that had served as a communal center, which was called the Seaview United Baptist Church. Um, in February 2020, the provincial government announced that the bell that had once hung in the original church would be returned and placed on the land outside of the Africville museum but where was where was this bell like where was it that they took it from to be returned to yeah so they had given it to another community for safekeeping um and today africville serves as a potent symbol in the fight against racism and segregation in nova scotia and beyond because yeah clear racism yeah absolutely that's super messed up so here's some joy joy in 1995 donovan bailey do you know that name Donovan Bailey. Ah, uh, you were only three at that point. Did they make Baileys? Is that where Baileys is named after? No, I'm sorry. Oh. Donovan Bailey from Oakville, Ontario, became the world's fastest human by winning the 100-meter sprint at the World Track Championships in Sweden. And then he went on to win gold at the 1996 Olympic Games in Atlanta, and, and at that time set a new world and Olympic record of 9.84 seconds. So now I was 11 at that time, and I remember this. I apparently was three at the time, and I don't remember this. But it was a huge deal. People were so excited about him winning this. And I remember that being like, yeah, he's Canadian. That's so cool. In 2002, the Honorable Jean Augustine was appointed Canada's Secretary of State for Multiculturalism and the Status of Women, which made her the first black woman in cabinet. And she was also the first black woman elected to Canada's House of Commons, where she pushed forward a motion to acknowledge February as Black History Month. So what that tells me is that we didn't really have Black History Month until 2002, which boggles my mind. That's wild. I would have thought that this would have started a long time before that. Me too. So she's a big reason that we have a month dedicated to celebrating black history in Canada. In 2005, the first black governor general was announced, who was Haitian-born Mikhail Jean, and she had dual French-Canadian citizenship, which did cause some concerns and allegations of a separatist connection. So remember, we've got the whole dichotomy of French versus English. Um, However, she renounced her French citizenship before taking office and refuted a connection to any separatist movements. When she was sworn in, she emphasized freedom 
as a central part of the Canadian identity and suggested that it was time to eliminate the specter of two solitudes, French and English, which has long characterized Canada's history. In 2018, Viola Desmond, who we will do a segment on, was a black woman from Nova Scotia who fought against racial discrimination after being refused a seat in a whites-only section of a Nova Scotia movie theater, became the first Canadian woman to appear alone on the Canadian $10 bill. And finally, in 2020, we saw the Black Lives Matter movement grow in visibility on the Canadian landscape. The deaths of Regis Korczynski-Paquette and DeAndre Campbell in Canada and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd in the U.S. sparked protests and demands to defund police services. Black Lives Matter has been a part of Canada since starting in 2014 in Toronto and four other chapters in Vancouver, Edmonton, Waterloo Region, and New Brunswick. All five of the chapters share the mandate of the original movement. They build connections and work with Black communities, Black-centric networks, and allies. Their stated goal is to dismantle all forms of state-sanctioned oppression, violence, and brutality against African, Caribbean, and Black cisgender, queer, trans, and disabled populations. Black Lives Matter Canada is also committed to ending Islamophobia and white supremacy and has expanded its focus to include Indigenous people in Canada. So, obviously, this is not a comprehensive retelling of Black Canadian history, and I'm not an expert on the topic. Um, I'm, I'm sure that I've missed many, many other historical joys and great things that have happened in Black Canadian history. And I apologize for that. Um, if you are listening and you know of some of these and would like to share your voice, please write in and let me know. And I'll try to make some amendments to this episode. But other than that, we are done that episode. Dakota any we're also skipping our rating on today's episode but Dakota do you have any thoughts about this yes I didn't pretty much everything that you talked about I didn't know anything about it so obviously I knew that the history was when you said that we were gonna do the history of this that there was gonna be some fucked up shit happening but like man that like just hearing about what happened in Halifax I guess I'll um i'll just use that as an example is that it's oh i just i can't believe that there are humans that have existed and still exist that would treat other humans that way well and i think that we as white people need to be better and call out some of those things that we see in other white people that allow for that to happen absolutely just messed up i think it was good that we talked about this subject matter and also I think it's good that we're recognizing the fact that this isn't our history. We don't know these experiences. All we can do is share share what we know and react to them and try to paint a light on it. And I, I really like at the end of this, you know, throughout the episode, anytime there's been a spark of joy, I've been like, oh, is this where we end? Like, come on, let's leave it on a good note kind of thing. But I liked that heading into the end, you were like, and this person did this, and that person did that. Like, the all these people that have accomplished so much, I think that's a good way to por- portray that, yeah, black people have been through some terrible, unimaginable things, and still there are these amazing people that exist and have been able to accomplish so much and do such badass things, you mm-hmm. know? I just think that's really cool. 
that that's how you know and then and ending it with black lives matter like such an important movement i just think that it's good that we talked about this well that's all we have for this week we'd like to thank you for taking the time out of your busy day to hang out with us if you enjoyed listening to what we had to say please subscribe to the podcast on apple spotify google or iHeartRadio. leave us a review or tell your friends about us. And I'd like to also make a caveat that please follow some of those podcasts that I talked about or the Instagram pages that I mentioned as well. They will all be linked in our show notes. And if you want to stay in contact or see behind the scenes action, you can follow us on Instagram at The Reluctant Historian. Or if you want to shoot us an email with future show ideas or corrections you may have noted, you can email us at thereluctanthistorian at gmail.com. And like Liz said earlier, that if you want to uh, email us about anything that we missed or anything shoot us an email we we can likely read it on the show and have a conversation about it so we want to interact with you guys so we'll see you next week same time same place hey it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to Quince I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.